In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I so very much appreciate Nancy's invitation to preach. I love having the opportunity to reflect a little bit about where I am in these diaspora times in my faith and to be asked to put pen to paper. This year, when I heard the temptation story, I was galvanized by the angels who were ministering to Jesus in the wilderness. It's in Mark and Matthew, but not Luke. And I can't recall the last time that I gave them a place in this story. It's always so much easier to focus on the devil. So we have Jesus who's baptized, he's named, he's called the beloved, and he's sent off then on a 40-day wilderness training. Joseph Campbell would call it the hero's journey, a kind of outward-bound training for what's next, an initiation into the family of creation. So he meets Lucifer. I prefer Lucifer to Satan because Lucifer is a fallen angel. Wild beasts and the angels. Not to mention the land, this desolate desert that he's in. Quite the party. I imagine the angels who were ministering to him Perhaps troops of angels, phalanxes of angels, around about him. And there are all kinds of angels if you study the lore. They're guardians, they're messengers, they're guides, they're healers, they're protectors, they're prodders. Take the four archangels, so familiar in scripture and in art. Michael, the great defender and protector. Raphael, he's the healer. Gabriel, the messenger, the inspiration. He who leads us, she who leads us into the new creation. And Uriel, who we don't hear much about, but Uriel's known for a solitary sense of self. There are thousands of these beings out there. Paul names them powers, principalities, cherubim, seraphim, thrones, dominions. Such a great variety of unseen beings who are rooting for us. They're on the sidelines in the desert with Jesus. We tend not to see them, hear them, smell them, taste them, feel them. Our thinking brain, which is so finely hewn these days, detours us off from noticing them. But this Lent, I've been noticing and pondering them. I'm following a less severe way, as Nancy and Christopher have both named. So when and what have those angels been up to and encouraging me in my wilderness, in your wilderness, in ours? Are they nudging? Are they nudging me towards healing? Remembering who I am, waking up to myself? 
Are they pointing me to a new articulated vision of meaning and purpose? I'm just wondering. I'm haunted by that line of Mary Oliver's. Only if there are angels in your head will you ever possibly see them. Imagine. What wings are batting about me? What halo sheds light from behind? And what sightings am I or have I been missing? Or do I just disbelieve and discount them? It's so easy to do that, isn't it? It's so easy to burn like a blazing wildfire these days, spewing sparks of judgment, criticism, wrath, blame. And our fires fuel each other, grows larger and larger as they rage. It's way too convenient to go this path. Sloppy spirituality. It's way too convenient to sink into the negative the hopeless, the suffering, the evil. I call this my Eeyore complex. It's so delicious to be right. It's like eating a box of Belgian chocolate. These fires, my fires, are stoked by fear and uncertainty. And they start to burn, it's hard to stop. I think of the pandemic as a gigantic stop, look, see. What tracks are in the snow? Have you noticed? Teeny tiny ones, regular ones, huge ones, foreign ones you don't know. Have you forgotten to investigate the scat that you come across? Perhaps the scat are breadcrumbs to God's house. Reminders. Only if there are angels in your head will you ever possibly see them. Fred Craddock, a great preaching teacher who's now dead, used to encourage his students with this phrase. He would challenge them to go marveling. It'd come down from his great aunt. So on Sundays, his family would get together and they would go out in the North Carolina woods to go marveling, like going wassling, going out and looking. And it doesn't matter what terrain you go into. Go receive the foolish, foolishness of God, if you like, the wildness, immensity of creation, the interconnection and dependency of all matter upon itself. Go marveling. And what kind of angel tracks do I now find in the Decalogue, which we heard today, and the cleansing of the temple? Did you cringe when you heard the commandments read? What memories did it evoke? In olden times, old-fashioned bishops, some of them required their confirmands to recite the commandments. Do you hate them, disagree with them? Do you follow them and abide by them? Inhale and pause. So consider 
what rules regulate and define your life, your behavior? If I gave you a sheet of paper, could you make a list? Another way of asking this question is to say, what am I willing to die for in 2021? And if we are like, which I think we probably are, the rules that I follow and the con have changed over time, depending on context and where I am in my development. How would you paraphrase the commandments for your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? I googled contemporary paraphrasings of the commandments. And I have to tell you, I particularly loved Bertrand Russell's, the great philosopher, and Richard Dawkins, the both atheists. They're worth looking at. But then I've always thought atheists are much closer to God than agnostics because they care deeply. Another thing I used to do with the Ten Commandments for my confirmands was to have them write their own commandments in a group. What rules did they, as adolescents, use to manage their lives with themselves, their parents, their siblings, their friends, society, God? What regulated their being? Because they're structures, and it gives you liberty if you know what they are. On top of this, the Decalogue is something in addition. It's a covenant. It's a promise. It's a pledge. It's a vision between God and God's created people. It's a map. We have in the church a baptismal covenant. We have a marriage covenant. We have the old covenant. We have the new covenant. One of the things about covenants is they're not meant to be done perfectly. You're meant to return to them, to refresh yourself, to remind yourself, oh, that's where I'm headed. That's the kind of person I want to become. That's the kind of way I want to behave. And the purpose of covenants is to offer a way towards freedom and towards intimacy and connection. They're not supposed to be imprisoning. So it might be a fun Lenten practice I put to you to take a moment and write down your guiding principles. Are they useful? Are they accurate? Are they helping you navigate these stormy times and seas? And then you might share them with the people you live with. Do they need tweaking? Do they help you grow into love and delight? Now let's go to the temple scene. The one that we love, where Jesus gets angry and creates havoc. He seems like the teenage rebel, doesn't he? coming into the dining room, challenging the parents. It's an action-packed moment. 
high street drama, performance art. What's the point? He enters the vestibule of the temple. He sees what's there. He fumes. He tosses everything over. One can say he blasphemes. This is killing. I'm getting rid of the dead wood. The practices that are going on here no longer serve the good of my people. They've become perverted, corrupted. He's like a vexed lion tamer, taking that great whip he makes of cords and cracking it around the temple and driving out the animals to freedom and turning over the tables and excoriating the merchants who are taking too much money. If I was there, I would have run and hidden. See, what happened for Jesus, the rabbi, the people had forgotten the heart of the Torah, the law. Whether they had forgotten or they were being misled by their teachers, it was forgotten. And that sacrificial temple system had become an old wineskin. It depended too much on the animals and the changing and exchange of coins so you could get rid of Caesar's face and put on the face for the temple. And it no longer fed the people. And the people were hungry. They craved the taste of milk and honey. Where was the food? Where was the bread of life? Have you noticed how disruption seems absolutely necessary for growth? And disruption so often comes in suffering and agony. Sometimes it arrives in chaos, upheaval. Sometimes in a pandemic. Sometimes in confused and muddled thinking. Interruptions, intrusions, there are times where the soil is turned over in order to prepare for new growth. The interruptions are the very stuff of life. They're giving you life. The Bible's full of tales and stories about disruptions. You have the flood with Noah. Abraham and his family are jerked out of your and they go to the promised land. You have that great scoundrel, Jacob. The exile in Babylon, the return from Babylon, the building of the temple. And this moment, Jesus enters the temple. It no longer works. Throw it out. Church history also is full of disruptions. Right? The East and the Western church divorce the Reformation, the God is dead pronouncement after the Enlightenment, and now what I call God is out of the box, period. God is out of the box, energy is exploding, old forms and ways are flailing, and we don't quite know where we're going. We're torn apart both literally and metaphorically, divided, polarized. 
Our bodies are fragmented, flying in all directions. We are lost. But I have a wonderful mentor named Dr. Belay, and he always says, he's in his 80s, it's good to be lost, Lucia, because then you can be found. It's good to be lost because then you can be found. He also says something to the effect, I've been kicked out many times and it's always the best thing that happened to me. I think that applies to the temple scene. So this is what I know. God desires closeness, homecoming. God desires to be known and enjoyed. Love. God's law is written in our hearts, as the psalmist says and Paul says, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are in this moment of recalibration, a time of retrieval and rediscovery of meaning, of purpose, of vitality. And the angels are ministering to us in the wilderness. And life has been disrupted. Business as usual doesn't work. And where was I caught in business as usual anyway? Where had my life become mechanical and automatic? You know, the kind of thing where you show up and, you sm and you're not there. Or you smile and not, you don't complain when someone says, how are you, and your heart is breaking inside. Or perhaps you've been seduced and subdued by ennui, so inundated by news and media and distractions, drama, soap opera. These are symptoms of something deeper. Live in the layers and not the litter, Stanley Kunitz wrote, one of my favorite poets. So what litter have I been living in and do I live in? Fear overtakes and numbs us. And my fear can feed me instead of the bread of life. It's very addictive. Sorrow and grief paralyze when we lose somebody, some way of life, we tend to cling to it. We want it to be the way it was and fail to see that it can be what it can become on the other side if we let it. And busyness has become the new virtue. Oh, I'm doing so much, I can't return your call, I can't do this, I can't do that. It disguises, doesn't it, busyness? our deep thirst and longing for meaning, for purpose, for vibrant life. And so we spin faster and faster with obligations, commitments, doing good, self-importance, flying out into outer space. Life as usual longs for disruption because in these interruptions, our deep yearnings and longings and heart 
are unveiled. And here is the good news. We are not alone. The angels are with us. God's law is written in our hearts. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so on Lent 3, let us heed Mary Oliver's words. Only if there are angels in your head, will you ever possibly see them? Amen.